0: hi this is queer margins series one old queens and i'm reese t matthews this podcast speaks to members of the lgbtq community who are already heard from and this series i'm talking with older queer people about their experiences so this is episode six femi
1: i mean i'm a feminist and i know that that and I would I would always have before called myself a radical feminist. I think I'd still call myself a radical feminist. But saying that you're a rad femme these days just conjures up so many other images in people's minds and brings a lot of stuff down on you which I think would be ill-placed. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a little bit of a shame. But I helped make that space. I'll be fucked if I'll give it up.
0: Andy from episode four recommended I meet Femi to hear what she's got to say. And it was good advice. So I went to meet her in the offices of her own business and we chatted for a while. Femi came out when she was in her late teens. She was later left by herself in London when her mother went back to Nigeria. And from then on she started experiencing gay life. This meant joining the women's movement. And as a young black woman who was a feminist and an out lesbian, she quickly became the centre of attention on the scene. So here's Femi with her story.
1: So the first time I got caught with a girl, I would have been about nine and okay. I got into trouble with <laughs> my auntie. Um, and gay or queer was not a thing. Yeah. Uh, certainly not in my head and within my realm. So that was a long time ago. But the time I was at secondary school, I kind of knew what I was right. By the way. right. And I'd, you know, done things like you know, because there was no internet, so I'd have been looking at things, like looking up homosexuality in the library went for a little period of thinking I must be a boy because, because I was attracted to girls, didn't want to marry a boy therefore I mm. thought I must be a boy then school was cool school was very nice and I had no problems with the idea that I might be that thing mm-hmm. and it wasn't, I got no messaging from school that suggested that that would be difficult, oh. nothing positive but nothing oh, negative okay. either, I mean just fine mm-hmm. um, and then by the time I was 18 my best friend had come out to me and I I didn't come out to her, I just said, oh, I'll still be your friend.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't
1: mind. Uh, yeah, I did actually, little, I think I did say, I don't mind, I'll still be your friend. And I think it was because she's white, I'm black, I think it's, I, saw, I thought it was different. And, right. it, and it was, and it would be different, I'd have a different experience. My family is a strong Nigerian culture, it would have been very different. But I wasn't freaked out by it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we stayed good friends, we're still friends today. Close She's oh, wow. my best friend. Um, And so we've known each other since we were 11. That's cool. And it's great that she's a lesbian because that just makes it all that much easier. Absolutely. Um, So that's when I came out. Uh,
0: So when did you come out, sorry?
1: So So I would have been... When I properly came out, I would have been in my late teens, 18, 19. My mother went to Nigeria, Mm -hmm. leaving me with a three-bedroom flat in North London. My dad was sending me money. It was... Heaven. Yeah. <laughs> it was heaven. So I had this flat in Hackney, where, you know, which had the highest incidence of lesbians in Europe, pretty much. <laughs> I don't know who counted them, but it you was know, <laughs> And, um, you know, I'd got into the women's movement, so there were lesbians leaping about all over the place. I was a feminist, I was involved in the Women's Liberation newsletter. I was at college, everyone was cool about it. It was lovely. Mm. It was lovely. That's
0: cool. <laughs> it's interesting that you, like, you know you said you like, look at the word homosexuality... Um, and that kind of thing, because I think a lot of people like spoken to just didn't even know that it was a thing, didn't even know it existed, didn't. Know, as in, they just thought that they were different and they didn't know anything else. Mm. So it's, yeah, it's interesting that you had an, a vague idea. Of what it well, was.
1: my family are intellectuals. So I feel all else. Right. My mother has a motto: read your book. If you finish that book, read another book. Right. Um, I don't know. She doesn't actually talk about Kindles, but uh, but <laughs> but the her approach. We're Nigerian. Nigerians get educated. You know, if nothing happening, take another degree. Right. that's pretty much what we do. Okay. So the the first thing you do is get, you look for a book. You go to the library, you look something up. Yeah, correct. Okay. Um, you know, I think I was sub- subscribed to the Reader's Digest at about four, <laughs> something. So that would be your default, and that's so often this sort of stuff is about class and mm-hmm. about money, um, and education, yeah. um, and support, um, and people having time. Yeah. You know. Um
0: so how did your parents take it when you
1: told them? My I didn't have much to do with my father. I didn't actually tell my mother. I think somebody told my mother when I was I think I was on Claire Rainer's casebook with Tom Robinson. Right. Okay. Uh so I don't know where we are now maybe 84 okay, maybe something like that. It's still quite early so i was still early 20s yeah. and Claire Rainer's uh, dedicated one of episodes. i tried to find it, I can't find it. BBC. Um, she dedicated one episode to homosexuality, right. and uh, so she interviewed Tom Robinson, who's the man, and she interviewed me as the woman, and we talked about that, and that was broadcast. And somebody told my mum, who was in Nigeria, ah, <laughs> uh, okay, I was
0: going to say it's quite a bold thing to do to go
1: on TV, because she was in Nigeria, so right. So, you see, so I was so—I mean, we didn't use the word privilege, but I was so privileged. I mean, from still actually being a kid and not not being rich, but being incredibly comfortable. Mm -hmm. And some could have said being quite vulnerable because I was in my late teens and alone in this country. There was no one here who was responsible for me at all except the whole of the women's movement. (laughs) Except the whole of the women's, we called it that time, the women's liberation movement, who just scooped up this little black kid. Now, the women's liberation movement at that time was known as being very middle class and very white. Mm -hmm. And I rocked up in 1978 with my best friend, Helen. We'd driven up the motorway to the Birmingham Conference. And at the time, we didn't know this, but everybody thought we were lesbians and we were in a couple. And that's because we were these two little, in effect, working-class girls. Even though my mother has kind of middle-class standards. Two little working-class girls from Hackney amongst all these kind of articulate, grown-up feminists. So we just were like, ah! <laughs> together. And everyone else was going, oh, cute, look at them. Yeah. We weren't a couple. Well, but they thought we were. And then there was this whole row going on about trying to get a woman's right to identify her own sexuality, in other words, be a lesbian, onto, added onto the seventh demand, I think, to the women's liberation, six demands of the women's liberation movement. So if, if you can imagine us standing at the back of the hall just watching these lesbians leaping up to the front and grabbing the mic and trying to explain why it was important that it was there, and others saying, you're splitting the movement and women's issues come first, and us two are like. Oh. <laughs> Oh we just came from day out. Yeah, we just thought it'd be nice. <laughs> to, to, you know, do it. So that was, um, so I'd done all of that. So then, so I was kind of confident, confident enough to do the TV programme. And because I was in this really lucky position where all these feminists were looking after me. And so that went out and so that was it really. I mean, yes. I joined Lesbian and Gay Switchboard. I was a volunteer there for 13 years, was a chair for a bit. Wow. Um, we started the Black Lesbian Group. Right. Um, again somewhere middle 80s that would have been mm-hmm. grew out of the word Organisation of Women of African and Asian Descent right. um, and I was on the board of Stonewall part of the yes, feasibility project for the Lesbian and Gay Centre mm-hmm. in Calcote Street and then the, um, the, the, then out of that the Black Lesbian and Gay Centre project as opposed to the group on the management committee of that uh, Busy! Yeah, yes. it sounds like it's very busy. <laughs> busy. Busy,
0: busy, busy. Um, so when your mother found out, how? We, so who told her? It was like a relative or something. Yeah, family. Right. Oh, Nigerians, okay. family,
1: oh my God. Yeah.
0: Um, when she found out, what happened then?
1: Like, she just said, stop for the sake of God and the sake of my life, stop going on television and talking about these things. She didn't, she didn't say, don't be a lesbian. Yeah. <laughs> she didn't say anything. She just said, don't, don't go on telly, stop it. And I was like, no, I like it. <laughs> so that got her a long way. Um... And, you know, although she didn't approve, and it wasn't, I remember her saying one day, you think you're so modern, you think you're so modern. And what she meant was that back in Eurobi history, you know, we have to remember that a lot of the Christian values that we think of as extreme in Africa, of course, come from here. But if you go back beyond that, she said, well, women, women have been marrying women. This is not special or civilised or exciting. This this thing is, they've been doing it in the bush for a long time. You know, so she wasn't particularly... Really, did Oh yeah, you'll find that in a lot of indigenous cultures, the First Nation people. So First Nation Africans, First Nations Australians, First Nations from the Americas, you'll find Mm -hmm. in their culture uh, where people have married, particularly women, but just certain others, a been accepting of you know gender shifting in a Mm -hmm. way that we weren't, but also be for women to set up together. So she was. She was like, well, she wasn't impressed. No, but she wasn't. She wasn't freaked out. She was just like, mm. "That's pretty cool." <laughs> this is not. This is not a particularly interesting yeah. thing. She was more upset that I'd taken up with a Jamaican woman than she was that I'd taken up with a woman. If that made sense. Why? Right. Because there's always, in those early days. There was a thing between uh, Caribbean and African people. Mm-hmm. Uh, people of Africa, which is weird because we're the same genes. Because of course we're the same people. We just some people took a longer route to get right. here than others. You know, stolen from West Africa, take it to the Caribbean and then come to Britain, as opposed to the other lot who came around the other way. But yeah. it's the same people. Yeah. Um, but often the Caribbean people would... I think they thought they were better than the Africans. So, Caribbeans would say that the Africans are not civilised, because of course they're still they're very close to the culture. Um, the Africans, who are snobby, would say that these people are not educated and they've come here to do the dirty work. We've just come here to study and go home. You know, it was all... Yeah. nasty stuff such that you'd get people like me who were African had African names of African descent would try and pretend they were Caribbean because it was cooler Right, okay You know, so yeah. we'd change on I didn't because I couldn't hide because I didn't have the the accent because I grew up in Worthing um, Yeah, so there was a there were mm. lots of dynamics Okay
0: You got an impression that your family you were kind of like involved in each other's lives, quite a lot. Mm. Was there any sort of, like, negativity from any
1: members of your family, but were they all, like, similar to your mother? I think the thing is, no, there wasn't really any negativity about me being a lesbian, and I think the reason that was, is because the fact that I was so English was more alien right. than the fact that I just surrounded myself by women. You know Nigerian culture, for all the, a lot of the powers held by men, it's actually quite matriarchal. You get these really strong women who do business as they call it. They do business, and they are proper business um and there's a high level of education amongst my people yoruba you know kind of to urban types right. so being English was more alien than bringing home a woman. Does that make sense uh yeah, I think so um because I spoke different. Mm. I had a different culture. I didn't have the same automatic respect for age and status. All of that was so much more apparent because mm-hmm. right. it affected them every day. Yeah. That that if anything if anything that made me feel alien to them it was that. Yeah. More than the fact that she only seems to hang out with her girlfriends. <laughs> I guess that kind is another thing. Right, it's another thing. That makes a
0: difference. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And
1: they I think they thought that the two were connected. Okay. I think they thought that well, you know she yeah. grew up there That she's taken on... as so many people tried to call it the white man's disease. So right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was that. So the net result is not too much trouble. That's that's the interesting thing. Mm. Yeah, that's great. I mean, she spent a period of kind of not... She wasn't here, so it was easier. Right. And she was worried about my sister, that whether, you know, my sister would turn into a lesbian. My sister was nine years younger than me at the time, so that was little. She was mm-hmm. ten or so. Um... But, I mean, I think that worry lasted about one summer, if you didn't come over one summer. Um, and my sister's like, I'm going. <laughs> and that was the end of that. Wow. So no, I've been very lucky. Yeah,
0: yeah, that is. Lucky. Um, so when you were left here in London, uh, was that kind of like, so it was the first time that you left by yourself when you were like 18, right? Mm. And you spent a lot of time with, um, with the women's movement. Mm. Um, like, how long did that go on for? You, you were just
1: sort of left in London by yourself? Yeah, I've always been in London like, okay. by myself. Yeah.
0: Wow. That was that. And you just
1: sort of start hanging out with all
0: these other people and kind of made your friends and family kind
1: of thing. Yeah, well, I mean, I, it's not that I didn't know London. I yeah. went to school. So I was I grew up in Worthing as a child with my English foster parents, which is also made me so English, and I got to... London, because my mum was studying, she was here, but she was studying, so I got to London at 11, went to this school, made this best friend, and had a little group of friends around that, then my best friend moved out, and then came back into London, we ended up sharing a flat together in London, and you know, it's happening, it was all these different types and there was the black lesbian group, and we'd cycle, we cycled everywhere, <laughs> down to the Black Women, and Black Women's Centre, so I had all the feminists, I was involved in various groups. And then I joined Switchboard, so I had all this other lot. And then I had all these amazing, amazing, a lot of them either privileged or free, mm-hmm. because you could you could decide just to go on the dole and not work for yeah. a year and put that energy into Switchboard. All these amazing gay men, most of whom were white, but not all of them. Resourceful, thought out, politically motivated people. So I had all the feminists on this side, all the gay men on this side, and there's this little, all young black dyke in the middle. And everyone was lovely to me. Almost everyone was lovely to me. So, you know, this night would take me to Subway. Subway was this gay club where it had a back room. Okay, got it. And they'd dress me up in a leather waistcoat because I was all skinny and, you know, shiny black and take me down to Subway or, you know, and then another day I'd be on a Reclaim the Night demonstration in an anti-abortion market. And it was
0: just incredible. I've not been in Subway before. I mean,
1: was Because you're young. <laughs> no, I mean... I, I mean like oh, have you not? Subway? Well, no. it would have been in... But it was central, very central London. I liked. I like to think of something like Soho or something okay. like that. Definitely underground, hence subway. Yeah. Have you spent to Lisa Power?
0: No. Did you go down
1: her? Yeah, she was the one who dressed me up in a waistcoat when I didn't know what I was doing. Okay. She just thought she she did get it. She'd been around gay men a lot more than me. In fact, she wasn't a feministy lesbian. She was the other kind of lesbian, mm-hmm. fag haggy type. Yeah. That's why I say that. But she hung around gay men more, um, and it was her that said, wear this." Oh banged gosh. me up, took me down, and like, but and stuck a um, a little um, collecting box in my hand that said, "Go in there and collect the Switchboard." And of course, I was just like this total little novelty. People gave me money. I didn't always have any trousers on to get the money out of, but those <laughs> that did were quite happy to give me money. <laughs> it's very sweet. A lot of people I've spoken to have worked at
0: Switchboard. Why was it so important? Reason.
1: Right. Well, don't forget there was no internet, yeah. so you, were all, you what you did was utterly vital, mm. and I mean from really tiny things to, from like, only gay in the village, I actually don't know what to do, to stuff that felt really important to the people at the time, like, my girlfriend is coming round now and she's going to stay the night and I don't know what to do, how do I start it, mm-hmm. to stuff that they think is important but is rubbish, like... Do you put the glasses on the left, on the right-hand side of the table? When I, that's the one I remember when I lay laying the table. Because, no, he's, brought, he's bringing his mum round for dinner. And it's really important. And where do the glasses go? And you rang switchboard for everything. You rang switchboard when you come out of a club at 3 o'clock in the morning and you didn't even know how to get home because you'd got off with this guy and he'd taken you somewhere and you don't know where you are. You rang switchboard because we were there 24 hours a day. You rang switchboard for everything. You got stuck out of your flat. You'd ring switchboard and go, Talk to my mum! <laughs> And did, you, did that happen to you? Yeah, and you talk to their mum and go, listen, it's not that bad, don't worry. You'd ring, you know, you'd ring switchboard if you came too soon and you weren't, you know, you were embarrassed and now you're going to see this guy and you want to think about how you're not going to... speak. And it doesn't matter if a lesbian picks up the phone, she has to say, listen, when you get close to it, what you have to think about is, no, 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 no so you don't come to... We had to be able to do all of it and we were utterly, utterly vital. 24-7. Mm-hmm. That phone rang all the time. If you wanted a wee, you took the phone off the hook because it was the only way that a call wouldn't come through. It was invigorating. You knew that you, it, was needed. It was. It gave you an immediate uh, social group, of mm-hmm. course, and a, a support network if you needed that as well. It gave you somewhere that you could always go to King's Cross at that time of the night. You knew it was going to be open. You could always wander in there. It wasn't very big and it wasn't very clean. Mm-hmm. And there were mice, but <laughs> you know mm-hmm. you knew you could go there. Um, so if it worked for you... Yeah. It was an incredible thing.
0: And did it take a lot of time as well? Did
1: you... It didn't have to. I mean, yeah. it did for me. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, a couple of my lovers, my long-term lovers, I met at Switchboard because I lived and breathed it. So, yeah. Uh, but it didn't have to. You just had to do a shift once a fortnight mm. um, and a night shift once a month. and So you could do as little as 10 hours a month.
0: Uh, and you mentioned the Club Subway. What other... Did you go out? Was like a lot of nightlife for you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What, was, what was your favourite... Like well,
1: the thing for me is, remember, I come from these two places, that mm. is, Women's Liberation, almost separatist at points, and then this other thing where I'm buoyed up, skilled, supported by a largely white gay male coterie, so I've got these two different things. So that meant that I went to heaven and I went to Bang, which was just down here, Bang's is mm. great. Um, uh, and... <laughs> Yeah, a lot, a lot of the drinking clubs, the little tiny ones, the Toucan and Jonathan's, the little ones upstairs, where okay. uh, there was a lot of rent um, at that time. But I don't know, I knew them, and I knew the guys, so I'd hang there. And then um, this whole other feminist stuff, so the carved red lion uh, in Islington, rackets, um, and just all sorts of places down in South London, around Southern London Women's Centre. And for the black women... There was a lot of blues with a lot of parties in people's houses because, you know, we had less money than the gay men, The people weren't, you know, trying to get... There wasn't a pink pound associated with the gay black women, so we had this whole mm-hmm. other scene going on over there. So it was really, yeah, there, so it was a lot of clubbing and a lot of demonstrating, a hell of a lot of marching. There wasn't just pride, there was lesbian strength, mm-hmm. and, of course, I was politically motivated, so whatever else was going on would be yeah. out. Doing that as well, ideally bringing the g- the lesbian and gay banner. So that means supporting, um, you know, lesbians and gays uh, support the minors, or, as I say, abortion rights, all mm-hmm. that sort of thing. That's cool. Yeah, lived and breathed it.
0: Um, do you still go to those sorts of pr- like events and marches and prides? I
1: d- I think I've only missed about three prides in my life. Okay. Um, and I think one of the ones I missed I went on the New York Pride and. One year I was in Mardi Gras instead in Australia. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm up now, up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now you've got Black Pride, it's exhausting, you've no idea. <laughs> so there's all of that, still doing that. Um, and, I, and I still... Vol- I've, I've been a volunteer for all of my adult life. Okay. Most of that time for LGBT... Well, it was LGBT, of course, at mm-hmm. the time, or lesbian and gay, we used to say. Most of the time for those organisations. So the last five or six years... I've been the chair of um, Women's Aid, which is the national domestic violence charity, mm. um, and that's because I get a lot of satisfaction around the LGB stuff um, through the work I do here.
0: Cool. Um, so
1: you did you
0: go to Pride this year, for example? Yeah. Or not? Because some people I've spoken to say like, they're not interested in those kind of events anymore because so they it's super commercialised. What are your
1: thoughts on that? I think they're ungrateful wretches. I worked my butt off to get those companies to to, to send, to sponsor Pride, to send things to Pride. You know, the day I got the London Fire Brigade, 1988, 9, to agree to send what they call an appliance fire engine on to Pride, you know. I, there were pictures of us everywhere who were on that fire engine, it was a massive breakthrough, the day we got Smirnoff to sponsor you know, a certain club just one event, you know, not the whole of Pride mm-hmm. that was huge, absolutely huge, and and Stonewall and agencies like my own have worked tirelessly, year after year, to get these companies to create spaces where we can be ourselves and bring our whole selves to work right, um and then we say, show that you're committed, rock up, go to Pride, show the community there's a place for you to be. We do all of that and then you lot go, oh, really <laughs> <laughs> What's the matter with you. Do you know what that took? Do you know how hard we worked to make that happen? Fucking smile and get in the indulged to the music and get on the floats. <laughs> Just no time for it at all.
0: So you still feel still feel welcome, like you're part of like the gay scene then as well?
1: Mm-hmm. Because um, it's nice actually to see so many black people now at Pride and I get a, 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 a real joy out of going to Black Pride. I'm a bit old for it, but get a real joy from that. Um, I have no problem about... I mean, I'm a feminist and I know that that... And I would I would always have before called myself a radical feminist. I think i still call myself a radical feminist. But saying that you're a rad feminist these days just conjures up so many other images in people's minds and brings a lot of stuff down on you, which... I think would be ill placed. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a little bit of a shame. But I helped make that space. I'll be fucked if I'll give it up.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting how you sort of like spent so long in it and kind of like, yeah, like helped define it. To bring
1: it into being. I mean, I don't don't take away from the fact that it was started by um, Gay Liberation Front and mostly men and a lot of camp gay men and drag queens because they were the ones who couldn't choose to hide or didn't, didn't choose to hide. You know, they're the ones who were out on the streets doing that shit in the days when I was probably still studying maths, you know, at school. Um, But they didn't make what it is today. You know, we all had our... They made one thing, you know, and then other people came in and they made something else and it's going and going and going and I, you know, held my hands up to being part of the commercialisation of it all. Um, and what we should do is increase the boundaries um, and be that word, inclu- be more inclusive, but that doesn't mean that some people have to leave.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. In London in the 80s, um, did you come into contact a lot with people who had like HIV and AIDS?
1: Yeah, well, on Switchboard, of course, we were right at the forefront of yeah. that. So the first things we heard were that these people... Were coming from America. I remember very clearly saying on the phone to gay men you don't have to worry as long as you haven't been in the bath houses in New York because that's what we thought it was about we all thought it was to do with men who did this stuff in the New York we didn't think it was anything you know I was on yeah, the phone yeah, at yeah, switchboard yeah, yeah. we believed that for a while um, and then uh, obviously after a while and then we thought it was connected to poppers we were saying don't you know don't do poppers there's a real correlation between men who do poppers and men who are, uh, we didn't, it was H, what did we call it? We didn't call it um, HIV, human Immunodeficiency virus. Yeah, so, yeah.
0: uh, three. that's it. Yeah.
1: And, um, yeah, we were saying, you know, it's connected to poppers, it must kind of suppress your immune system, because of course it was connected to the lifestyle, so you know that thing yeah. about correlation but not causal. Um, my, I think my trainee on switchboard. I hope I haven't got that mad in my mind. I think my trainee on Switch was a guy called Tony Whitehead.
0: I um, I spoke to him yesterday
1: actually. Oh okay. Yeah. Um, so we were there right at the beginning and all of that. I was answering the phones to gay men. have always felt a, a real sense of responsibility around that. You know, just feeling a need to be part of the community and being part of the interventions around it. And you know, we lost our friends. Yeah. You know, we lost. Yeah, you know, Mark Ashton and I walked together with Jimmy Somerville into County Hall to, you know, be part of the meeting to talk about the feasibility of the Lesbian and Game Centre. You know, those people were, yeah, they're, they're people that made me. So that was a really difficult time. I just find it so difficult
0: to imagine, like, why it was like, at the time, and, like, I, that is,
1: yeah. It felt like we were under attack, and it was very odd, because, Again, that was another thing that kind of, for a while, threatened to put a, make a script between lesbians and gay men because lesbians weren't affected by it, and then there was a very odd thing about some lesbians trying to, again, we were, we we're at risk of HIV too, and um, there were dental dams everywhere, and these bits of square hair that you're supposed to put over, your box. Given um, the choice, would you um, choose
0: to be straight?
1: No. 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 So uh, somebody told me once, and I'm just going to pinch this. She said, but um, she went to her doctor and she told her doctor that she was a smoking, a heavy smoking, heavy drinking, a heavy clubbing lesbian. And her doctor said, "Well, you've made one positive lifestyle choice at least." Oh, well, <laughs> well, because you've got no risk of cervical cancer, oh. practically no risk of cervical cancer. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it was quite sweet. Um, I mean, I probably would have chosen differently when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Um, but I made a conscious. I mean, I, you know, if life had been harder for lesbians, I'd probably be married somewhere and just having it off with all the local ladies. Mm-hmm. I don't. I didn't feel, you know, that strongly about it at the time. Um, but I made a conscious decision to make, to live a lesbian lifestyle. Yeah. And yeah, I wouldn't swap that.
0: Given what you you experience and what you know about. Life today, would you swap your experiences and swap your time spent being sort of in your 20s and get like lesbian when you were for being in your 20s and lesbian now?
1: No, I don't think I would. I think it's possible to be lonelier, lonelier given who I am. Mm-hmm. I would have been lonelier now, possibly, than then. Right. Well, because I was, because I just was this novel little thing. You know, I was like the little puppy in the room that everybody wanted to stroke. Everybody was lovely to me. I was, whereas now I wouldn't be special. <laughs> at all. You know, there's lesbians everywhere, young ones, black ones, whatever. Mm. Find a young black lesbian in 1983 that's out and on the scene and wandering around the clubs and whatever. No, uh-huh. no, no, yeah, you no. You made no, yourself no. a prized possession. Well, they did it. Yeah, you know, I'm yeah. walking, they be like, hi. you know i got got onto the stonewall management committee in my early 20s what did i know fuck all i I didn't know a thing they just let me on and i learned i learned a lot from them and you know the fact that i can run my business now i put down to a guy called michael derrick who used to be chair of uh, switchboard who taught me to chair to put down to andy pickles who got me onto switchboard which gave me loads of skills I put down to too many women to name in the women's movement, but all the women who were in my consciousness raising group who spent time with me and helped me develop my confidence and skills and my ability to debate Mm -hmm. and persuade people. Um, And if there had been more like me around, I'm not sure they would have invested in me in the same way.
0: Is there anything um, that you'd like young queer people to know?
1: Um, Well, I had this campaign going about, it gets better, It, it gets better. Um, and I think that is true because you get tougher and stronger and your resilience grows and so you are more able to cope. But more than that, I'd say that if you are, if people aren't accepting you for what you are, find different people. Don't even waste your time and energy trying to persuade them because there are other people that will accept you and will support you to be everything that you can be. So don't don't invest in them if they're not prepared to invest in you.
0: It was great talking to Femi and hearing her take on queer issues from her life, and I'm so grateful she could find the time to chat to me. Uh, Femi's episode is shorter than most because we had to find a window of time that fitted with a very busy schedule. Given more time, I could have talked to Femi about her stories for hours. Having said that, I'm really pleased that so many of her experiences were so positive, and it was great to hear that. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, then please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes, and you can also follow on Instagram, which is at Queer Margins. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, you podcast listener. Yeah. Hey, listen up. Hey, shut up. <laughs> I know you're looking for new things to binge. And purge. <laughs> <laughs> gayish is about gay stereotypes we've talked about depression drag queens uh butt stuff fisting animals uh fisting and animals are two different episodes <laughs> just to clarify you can find us on itunes or wherever podcasts are given away for free tell your mom she's probably gay <laughs>